The opinions expressed in the Z Show are those of Z alone, and do not reflect the opinions of the other Knicks on the Knicks cast, or of any of the other hosts or co-hosts working in the Knicks cast family of podcasts. Same for the Z Show. Hey, this way, maybe I should. This is the Z Show. It's the show where Z has some stuff, and people hopefully listen. It's the Z here with the Z Show, and it's great. And I hope you like it, because that was it. See you later. Bye. If there is evil in this world, it lurks in the hearts of men. Hello everyone, and welcome to this, your The Z Show for August 2016. That quote and that music can only mean one thing. Tales of Fantasia. Tales of Fantasia is my favorite game of all time in part because of what's in the game, and also because of the story and the mystique around how that game came to be made. But before I go any further, I definitely need to warn you that if you do not want anything Tales of Fantasia related spoiled, listen no further, because there are some major, major spoilers for the story of Tales of Fantasia coming up. That said, you've been warned. For those of you out there who don't know, Tales of Fantasia was the first in the now prolific Tales of series of RPGs. But this series did not have a smooth start. From its conceptualization to its release, there were obstacles for it to overcome. But let's start at the beginning. Yoshiharu Gotanda was just starting out when he joined Japanese software and video game firm Telnet. He was brought on as part of Wolf Team and given the task to make games. Wolf Team put together a few titles and they met with some success. But after some poor experiences with Telnet, Gotanda sparked something incredible and he did it with an unpublished manuscript. was for a novel called Tale Fantasia that told the story of an alien coming to the Earth-like planet of Asalia and trying by various means to get access to the life-giving mana tree on that planet. Why? Well, he needed it for his own planet, the planet of Darius Carlin, whose own mana tree was long-suffering. The novel told this story through three different perspectives. The first was that of Winona Pickford, a woman who was among the first to meet Deus, this alien, and the woman who fell in love with his noble bearing and virtuous purpose. 
in her portion of the story, Deus becomes more and more violent as humanity does more and more to stop him from getting access to mana, and he does more and more to stop them from experimenting with it, thus destroying their own life-giving mana tree. The second part of the novel, Tale Fantasia, was told through the perspective of Rhea Scarlet, the daughter of two Magitek scientists. Now, in the world of Tales of Fantasia, and many of the Tales games to follow, magic is weirdly, but very, very fascinatingly, blended with science, so that it's very common for there to be societies and cities and towns that are hubs for these these, these scientists of magic, basically. So, Rhea Scarlet was the daughter of two such people, and when Deus was going on his original rampage, the Magitek scientists were among the first and most viciously sought after of his victims, because obviously they're the ones experimenting with mana and wearing out the planet's life force and, and all that stuff. So, Rhea's parents are killed by Deus, and she is filled with rage and a lust, a thirst, an unquenchable thirst for revenge. Third and final part of the story in Tale Fantasia was from the perspective of Cress or Cless, Elbane, the son of two of the people who managed to seal Deus away, putting an end to his war against humanity. However, his parents are killed by people trying to revive Deus, and so Cress swears revenge. But he's no mere whelp, just swearing revenge, you know, impotently. No. Cress, in fact, actually is taken through time, and chases Deus down across time. As ambitious as all of that sounds, Gotanda and the team started to work on a game based on this manuscript. But of course, video games of such a scope, with so much going on in them, take time. And they also take money. So the Wolf team sought out funding for this new project, this new RPG that they thought was going to be amazing. So they started out aiming big, like you do, and they went all the way up to Enix, the famed publisher of the Dragon Quest series of games, and they were turned down. But taking this in stride, Wolf Team then turned to Namco, and Namco really saw something in the project, and they agreed to fund it, on the condition that various things be changed. But these changes weren't just minor little cosmetic things here and there, or, you know, a tweaked art style, or a little bit of a plot point here or there, cut out or abridged or embellished. No. Namco, on sort of the smaller side of things, wanted to change the name of the game from Tale Fantasia to Tales of Fantasia. Okay. But they also wanted to cut down the game's story quite a lot. It's difficult to tell from the research that I've done just what Namco wanted to cut from the story, but ultimately... The entire first section of the novel involving Winona Pickford is gone from the game, and the Rhea Scarlet section, the second 
third of the novel, as far as I know, is abridged into a little almost side questy seeming thing in the game. It's necessary for the story. It's part of the critical path, as they say these days, but it's not a very big part of it. Most of the game focuses on Cress and his journey through time and the people he meets and the party he gathers together around him. Despite these changes, Wolf Team powered through. They finished the game according to Namco's specifications, and then Yoshiharu Gotanda, Masaki Norimoto, and Joe Asanuma left Wolf Team and went on to form Triace, a maker of only RPGs nowadays. In fact, they are the makers of the Star Ocean series, which has a lot of similarities to Tales of Fantasia, an action-packed battle system, a huge scope for its story, and other games, you know, like Valkyrie Profile. Unfortunately, though, for this trio of, of aces, hence the name Triace, the rights for the Tales series of games, for the Tales story and characters and all that stuff, remained with Namco. So they could no longer make Tales games, but Namco could, and Namco did, and does, and probably will for a long time into the future. But the real kicker here, at least for me, is that originally Gotanda and his team wanted to get Tales of Fantasia out in 1994. The SNES still had, you know, about a year or two before it would be obsolete thanks to the Nintendo 64. But what's more is that in having the game pushed back all the way to 1995, Namco wound up releasing Tales of Fantasia at the same time that Dragon Quest VI launched. And if you know much about Japan and their Dragon Quest video games, you know that Dragon Quest always sells a crazy amount of copies when it first comes out. And looking at the numbers, in 1995, Tales of Fantasia sold 220,000 copies, which is a respectable number for any game at the time. Even now, it's not half bad. But Dragon Quest VI sold 2.5 million copies, so it really paled in comparison in that first run. What makes that such a big deal to me is not just the difference, not just the chasm between those two releases and, and the numbers and stuff, it's that because it performed so poorly, I think that Tales of Fantasia really fell way down the list of games that could possibly be localized. I mean, it would have been a heck of a lot of work to translate all the dialogue and, you know, localize all the different cultural references and jokes and that sort of thing. But still, that extra year, I think, might have might have been enough because sales might have also been a lot better if it had released somewhere other than in the shadow of a Dragon Quest game in Japan in the 90s. So that's the story of the development of the game in a nutshell. And already, those of you who are familiar with me, Z, from things like the next cast or my blogs or just my web presence in general, know that I'm a, I'm a bibliophile. I'm a book guy. So a video game being based on a book? Awesome. Video game being based on a Japanese fantasy novel? Even better, because some of those are just incredible. But that's just the beginning 
with Tales of Fantasia. I mean, we haven't even gotten into the product itself yet, into the game. Because setting aside the minor plot holes and time paradoxes that cutting down into bridging the game's story created, it still tells a really gripping yarn that's unlike a lot of the other stuff that was out there at the time on the Super Famicom. And after all, what's more important in an RPG? The story is so essential to a good one. Sure, there's the battle system and whatnot, but I mean, the story is the linchpin, the story is the spine. In this game, this game's got a spine. So the game puts you into the shoes of Chris Elbane, the one who goes through time to seek revenge against Deus. And immediately from the start of the game, you're joined by Cress's friend, Chester. Cress is a swordsman, Chester is, a, is an archer, well, a hunter, really. But basically, you've got close-range attacks and long-range attacks. Battle system stuff. So, Cress and Chester lose their village in Deus's attack. At that point, Chester decides to stay behind to bury the dead, and in particular to bury his sister, who was the only living family that he had. Meanwhile, Cress goes to meet up with his uncle to try to figure things out and try to piece things together. And his uncle turns on him and sends him right into Deos's claws. Because as it turns out, Deos is sealed using this, this spell, this magic, that can only be unlocked with two pendants. And guess what? Cress has one of those pendants. So he's strung up in a dungeon. While he escapes, he meets up with the white magic girl, Mint Adonade. So these two journey through the sewers, and they wind up outside, and then they hunt down Trinicus D. Morrison, who was one of the people who fought alongside Cress's dad in the battle against Deus. At which point they also meet up with Chester again. And then... Once he finds out that Cress's pendant is gone, has been stolen, Trinicus D. Morrison runs off to the catacombs where Deus is sealed, and the trio of Cress, Mint, and Chester follow hot on his heels because they want to help out. However, when everybody arrives at the catacombs, it turns out that they are all too late. Deus has been revived, he has just destroyed his minion, the aptly named Mars, and has turned his attention to Trinicus D. Morrison himself, as well as the, the kids gathered there. So, not wanting to see the children of the people that he fought with die by Deus's hand, Trinicus uses his magical power to send them back in time a hundred years, with the hopes that they can go back and defeat Deus before any of this stuff happens. So, Cress and Mint awake a hundred years in the past. Chester is nowhere to be found except for his broken bow, so we're not sure what's happened to him at this point. But through their researches, through their hunting down and talking to NPCs, um, Cress and Mint learn that the only way to defeat Deus is with magic. Physical attacks have no effect. So they seek out magic users and wind up finding... Arch Klein, the half-elf sorceress, and Klaus F. Lester, 
the human summoner who makes contracts with the various spirits of the world and can summon them in battle. He's pretty cool. He's also the oldest guy I know of in, in, a, in an RPG cast, because he's like 32 and every other character is like 18. Anyway, this group winds up ultimately facing off against Deus, and just as they're about to beat him, he zips away through time, because, you know, if Trinicus D. Morrison, a mere human magician, can do it, surely this crazy powerful alien can jump through time too. So he jumps ahead back to the present, and then the group finds a way, I'm not going to spoil everything about the game, finds a way to follow him. They do so. There they learn, though, that he is once again, Deus has once again jumped ahead in time, this time by 50 years. So the group once again jumps ahead themselves. In this future, they find out that if they wield the Eternal Sword, a thing that is kept by Origin in the Forest of Ymir, which is populated by half-elves, they can prevent Deus from jumping through time. So they go get this sword, they go face off against Deus again, and they take him down. And it's then that this group of adventurers out to save the world realize that in trying to save their world, they may well have doomed Daris Carlin. However, the ending is not entirely bittersweet. The spirit of the Manatree, Yggdrasil, her name, the spirit's name itself is Martell. I'm not sure why there are two separate names for the spirit and for the tree, but so it goes. In an attempt to, you know, maybe make things right with Daris Carlin, she sends a seed of the mana tree out into space. Maybe it makes it, maybe it doesn't. I don't know. I'm sure there are fan theories. I'm sure references and future games kind of make it clear whether it succeeded or not. But nonetheless, the game then wraps up with everybody going back to their own time. Um, you know, some people have paired up, other people have had a very long distance and also a long time relationship with uh, various people. And thus ends the game. Everything is concluded. Man, what a wild ride it's been. No summary can do it justice. I cut out a lot of things. I didn't mention a lot of stuff. Whole swaths of the game just fell before my my prissy, if you will. But nonetheless, nonetheless, that is the story in a nutshell. And, you know, even in a nutshell, which, considering how much was cut from the original ideas for the story, um... Even in a nutshell, the game itself, if you ever pick it up, or you can just take my word, if you will, it feels like something that's based on a book. And I say that because there's all sorts of extra lore that you can learn by checking out bookshelves throughout the game, or talking to all the NPCs, going on various quests. There's a lot of stuff, there's a lot of detail that went into this game, and this might just be me taking out of the game something that I am putting into it, but... It feels 
different from other RPGs that are super fleshed out, that have all sorts of lore in-game and all that stuff. It feels like it's not just based on some story bible, a bunch of writers, a bunch of programmers threw together. It feels like something that's based on a novel in the sense that, you know, when somebody writes a novel, they usually have a bunch of stuff that they leave out because novels are like icebergs. 10% of an iceberg is showing. 10% of all the background information that went into a novel is usually on display in the novel. And then that that comes through in the game. It's just such a, a vivid story. It's just such a vivid world. It's really no wonder why Namco went on to make more in the series. But it's not just the world and the story that feel fleshed out to me. The characters in the game feel more real to me than most others in RPGs of the time and even RPGs of now. And, you know, it's a little bit of a superficial reason, I feel, but I think it's still a pretty big... Well, I, I think it's still a factor in how I feel about the characters. But they all have last names. I mean, yeah, Final Fantasy happened to do the same thing a few entries after it started, but a Kane Highwind or a Tara Bradford or a Tifa Lockhart just don't seem as true to life to me as an Arch Klein or a Klaus F. Lester. Even a Cress or Kless, Elbane. Somehow there's more moxie in these names in Tales of Fantasia. Though, of course, names are just one part of the fleshing out of these characters. Because along the way, along the story, there's all sorts of things happening to these characters, all sorts of things happening to you as a player. There's heartbreak, there's loss, there's triumph, there's joy. As I mentioned before, Cress and Chester lose their whole village. Maybe a bit tropey for some, but for me it really got me. I cried when I saw that scene when I was playing this game originally, uh, back in like 99, 2000. It was really emotional. Chester especially, um, I feel like this is something that's still not really done that much in games today. Chester is the sole guardian of his sister, the only person that she could rely on in the whole world, but when he and Cress are out hunting and the village is attacked, she's killed. And the whole game, Chester's trying, struggling to come to terms with this. It's just really effective character development. And then there's the character of Arch. Arch Klein, the half-elf sorceress, and it became kind of a trope throughout the rest of the tale series, and I kind of get the feeling that it's a trope in fantasy novels as well, um, earlier fantasy novels more so, perhaps, that Arch's half-elf status is used as a, as a way to talk about racism, because she is rejected by humans who find out that she's a half-elf because she's a half-elf. And she's rejected by elves because she is a half-human. And it's this, it's this really interesting thing to see in a video game, especially one that's based in sprites, or especially one that, you know, was on the Super Famicom. Video games in the 90s, especially over here in the West, didn't really have that kind of social awareness. They were very, you know, there were environmental games, but I don't remember very many games on the Super Nintendo that tackled or mentioned or acknowledged racism. So there's a lot going on with these characters. 
even with Klaus, I mean, who in the translation that I originally played, the uh, famous DJAP translation, um, where uh, a lot of the dialogue was punched up, Klaus winds up, well, thanks to the power of one of his summoned spirits, Origin, winds up having a super long distance relationship with his, I want to say wife, but never been totally clear. But I do know that through this summon spirit, he's able to have, you know, this really emotional conversation with her over the span of many, many miles and also over the span of like a century and a half. It's crazy. It's stuff that you just don't, well, didn't see and don't really see now either. But it's super interesting stuff and it really makes the characters feel more realistic than, say, somebody going to a cave that's all about memories to revive the memory of their lost love. It's very sweet, but it doesn't have the humanity of something as simple as a long-distance call, or tackling racism, or even, you know, dealing with grief and loss in a way that's not just limited to a side quest. find myself having to, to go back a little bit. Uh, if you've been listening to The Z Show for uh, a while, you'll probably realize that uh, the organization of these scripts is not always on point. But I've got to go back a little bit now and back into the development of the game very, very briefly. Because one important detail about Tales of Fantasia, I feel like one of the reasons why it's so memorable, it's such a standout game, even if some things are perhaps dated now or in comparison not as high quality or there's no HD to be found here, no 4K, but this the Super Famicom cart that Tales of Fantasia was made on is a 48 megabit cart. And, you know, um, it's somewhat famous to say that the NES had 8 bits, the Super NES had 16, and I think that's common for most games. The other standout, though, is Chrono Trigger, which had famously a 32 megabit cartridge. So twice the power, twice the storage of most other games on the Super Famicom and to turn the Super Nintendo. But Tales of Fantasia, they didn't just turn it up to 11. They turned it up to 16 because they had 16 more megabits to play with on that Tales of Fantasia cartridge, and the reason for that extra space was because there were voice samples in this game. Voice samples that actually sound like people speaking, that actually sound like the words that they are supposed to be saying. And yeah, because this game was never localized, uh, the words that are said are mostly in Japanese. Take the example of the music you heard at the top of this, uh, this episode, the opening theme song, that's right, the opening theme song for a Super Famicom game, um, Yume wa Orenai, The Dream Will Not Die. A full-fledged, completely on-the-cart J-pop song that is the theme song for Tales of Fantasia. That's all in Japanese, as you might have noticed. But the other voice samples throughout the game are actually in English, and it's kind of, I feel like this is another 
another bit of the game that to me is very charming, but other people might come across as corny or poorly done or whatever. But they will call out the names of their attacks, their spells, their techniques, that kind of thing. And they do it using the English words, but of course they're Japanese voice actors. So some of the words are heavily accented, some some of them aren't, some of them are, to- are totally, you know, as an English speaker would probably say the same thing. I always found that really neat and really charming and just really, really cool to have that little feature in there, that little extra. All that extra space also means that the famed composer, Matoi Sakuraba's music, really gets to shine in this game. There are some awesome compositions and... Again, another feature you didn't really see in RPGs in the 90s and still don't really see today is a sound test. And unless it, this was just in the uh, the translated patch that I was using to play the game originally, um, this sound test is accessible from the start menu and you can just play any song in the game. And it's not just, you know, a little feature that they threw in at the last second because, oh hey, there's a few extra megabits here, we can fill it out with something. It actually is worthwhile to just sit there and cycle through some of the music because some of it is really, really good, including a lot of the battle music, because the song Fighting of the Spirit is incredible. Speaking of the battle system, the game's linear motion battle system blew my mind as a kid. An RPG where you fight monsters as a whole party in a 2D side-scrolling style? Needless to say, the game's developers were inspired by the fighting games of the time, which, you know, Street Fighter, Virtua Fighter, uh, so on and so forth, were becoming really popular at the time. And needless to say that this inspiration led to an incredibly satisfying way to battle enemies in a game that's in a genre that can be a little bit menu-heavy in battles sometimes. So, story, characters, battle system, awesome sound and music, it's all there with Tales of Fantasia, and that's what makes it my favorite game of all time. It's the complete package. Even if that complete package might be missing some of the polish, some of the shine of today's complete packages. Tales of Fantasia was the first game that made me cry along with the characters. It was the first game to shock me with its dialogue, and it was the first game to show me that fantasy stories did not need a generic fantasy villain or all-around 100% happy ending. So, I say play it if you can, replay it if you have, and remember that the dream will not die. Alright everybody, that will do it for this month's episode. Thank you very much for listening. And I also should say that that should do it for the Z Show. Yes, there are some changes coming to the next cast and the uh, podcast that G, T, and myself, Z, produce. 
We're changing the format. We're changing the, the focus of the content. We're still going to be talking about pop culture stuff, but we're going to be looking more at the fans that are engaging with it. I can't really say anything else, but watch thenextcast.com for updates as they come out. Also, keep up with us on our Twitter, at thenextcast, and our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thenextcast. We are hoping to launch this reiteration soon, and, you know, myself, and on behalf of the other Knicks, G&T, definitely want to thank you for listening to everything that's appeared on this feed, from the Knicks cast, to Who in Review, to ICUCW, to Into the Deep End with T, to Life is a Long Song with G, to The Z Show with me. So thanks very much for listening. The Knicks will return. Uh, Thanks very much for listening to today's episode as well. And as always, and forever, all Zs are Zs, but not all Zs are Zs. Please note, all copyrighted materials that can be heard in this podcast are the property of their respective owners. They are used in this podcast under fair use and fair dealings laws. Yeah, <laughs> 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 Jesus Christ.